morning. I have a terrible time going to the grocery store to get one or two things for my wife. And here's why. It's not because I'm super forgetful or have a bad memory. I don't have a great memory, but I don't have a bad memory. Um, it's because I get there, and I walk in, and I just get distracted. Like, this week, I walk in, just getting one or two things, right? I look, oh, there's a huge cookie shaped like Andy Reid's face. What is that? Like, I'm a Chiefs fan, but that's weird. Um, okay, how much is it? Uh, nah, 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 I can't justify that. Keep walking around, you know, and it's like, what am I here for? And then I, and I'm like, oh, Mountain Dew's on sale. You know, like, I just... Just get caught by all of these these deals and these things, and especially when you're hungry, you know, and Heather's making supper, and so she's like, can you go get, oh, I need these two little things I forgot, and I'm like, well, I'm hungry, so well, that looks good, and it's just, it's bad, but um, so I often have her text me uh, those one or two things to help me stay on track and to make sure I actually get the things I'm supposed to. Um, why am I sharing this with you? Well, we're in the book of Titus. And a little background, Paul is writing a letter to Titus, who was a pastor uh, and church planter that Paul left on the island of Crete to build up these churches, raise up leaders. And today we're in chapter 3, and the first two words of our passage today are remind them. Remind them. Them meaning Titus, you need to remind everyone who's in the church, all the believers in Crete, you need to remind them and remind means they already knew these things. So they won't be a surprise to you, and they won't be a surprise to them, and they really needed to hear these things again because it's easily, easy to get distracted and it's hard to live them out. So they needed reminded of things because, not because they have a bad memory, but because they get easily distracted just like we do. See, in our lives, things tend to go from front and center that should be front and center to kind of peripheral fairly quickly. Like, for example, my kids, I'm, I'm positive that they don't just forget to pick up after themselves, but most of the time they just get distracted, like I do at the store. So Titus and believers in Crete are much like us today, easily distracted from the things that are most important and so they need constant reminders of the most important things. So that brings us to Titus 3. So I'll read the whole thing, and I'll be using the CSB, the Christian Standard Bible. So Titus 3, verse 1. Remind them to submit to rulers and authorities, to obey, to be ready for every good work, to slander no one, to avoid fighting and to be kind, always showing gentleness to all people, for we too were once foolish, disobedient, deceived, enslaved by various passions and pleasures, living in malice and envy, hateful, detesting one another. But when the kindness of God our Savior and his love for mankind appeared, he saved us not by works of righteousness that we had done, but according to his mercy, through the washing of regeneration and renewal by the Holy Spirit, he poured out his Spirit on us abundantly through Jesus Christ, our Savior, so that, having been justified by his grace, we may become heirs with the hope of eternal life. This saying is trustworthy. I want you to insist on these things, so that those who have believed God might be careful 
to devote themselves to good works. These are good and profitable for everyone. But avoid foolish debates, genealogies, quarrels, and disputes about the law because they are unprofitable and worthless. Reject a divisive person after a first and second warning. For you know that such a person has gone astray and is sinning and is self-condemned. When I send Artemis or Tychicus to you, make every effort to come to me in Nicopolis, because I have decided to spend the winter there. Diligently help Zenos the lawyer and Apollos on their journey, so that they will lack nothing. Verse 14, let our people learn to devote themselves to good works for pressing needs, so that they will not be unfruitful. All those who are with me send you greetings. Greet those who love us in the faith. Grace be with you all. Now let me give you a little basic layout for Titus 3. And then we'll break it down by the helpful reminders he gives them. So verses 1 and 2 are the crux of the whole thing. So these are the helpful reminders to Titus and the believers in Crete. All crammed into two verses. Then... Verses 3 through 7, kind of a sandwich in this chapter. 3 through 7 is is a reminder of the gospel to motivate them, to fuel them, to live out those reminders or commands found in verses 1 and 2. So even in the way he presents the gospel in verses 3 through 7, he gives specific fuel for those commands in verses 1 and 2. And this is the way of Christ. We saw this in Titus chapter 2, 11 and 12. Grace is our teacher. Grace is our motivator. The gospel motivates us. We operate from acceptance by God, not for acceptance from God. We obey obey out of grateful response to the grace of Jesus, not to try to earn the grace of Jesus. It's already ours. And then in verses 7 through 15, it's a reminder of the helpful reminders of verses 1 and 2. So he reminds them of what he already reminded them in verses 7 through 15, and you might be thinking, wow, these guys are really forgetful. Why? Why does he do this? Well, because it's easy to forget, and it's even harder to live out. So what are these key helpful reminders and commands? The first one is to do good works. Do good works. If you, if you read through Titus, this is actually a theme throughout. I think he says it four or five different times. Do good works, do good works, do good works. So verse 1 here, it says, Remind them to submit to rulers and authorities, to obey, to be ready for every good work. Now he starts with talking about doing good works with one area that they really needed reminded to do good works in, and that's in relationship to authority. Remember, Cretans, as we learned in previous weeks, are called, and I quote, evil beasts, and they lack self-control. So, Submitting to and obeying authority certainly would have been in stark contrast to the culture around them. And they would have stuck out like a sore thumb to submit to authority in their lives. And obviously they would have even lost opportunities by not cheating the system like clearly a lot of people were around them. So they would have been at a disadvantage to do this in society. But similar to Romans 13, 1-7, he's calling them to submission to authority. Now certainly, now certainly, it's not that uh, you, don't, you don't submit to authority that asks you to disobey God. 
But that's hardly ever the case in everyday life. So it says, be ready for every good work. So don't just do the bare minimum of paying your taxes and following the laws. Be ready to help, to pray for, and do whatever you can to support authorities. That would have been shocking to them then, and that's shocking to us today. Both in Crete and in modern-day America, we have this mentality of, don't you dare tell me what to do. You can't tell me what to do. Even words that are used here, submit, authority, we cringe at today. Do we not? But we are not, listen well, we are not first and foremost Americans. We are first and foremost followers of Jesus. And he calls us to obey authority. He calls us to be ready even, eager, looking for opportunities to obey authority, to serve. What if we started just thinking different, differently about authority in our life? Before we even talk about doing, what if our thoughts just started to change towards authority? What if, what if when we thought about the President of the United States or the Governor of our state or elected officials or law enforcement or principals or kids, your parents, or elders, pastors, you name it, any authority figure in your life, what if every time you thought of them, you trained yourself just to pray for them? What if every time you thought of them, you trained yourself to think of ways that you could support them? Our thoughts precede our actions. Be ready to do good works by thinking differently about authority, and your doing will be sure to follow. Verse 8 he continues his thoughts on do, doing good works. It says, this saying is trustworthy. I want you to insist on these things so that those who have believed God might be careful to devote themselves to good works. These are good and profitable for everyone. Now, I was struck by the phrase in here, be careful. Be careful to devote yourself to good works. Be careful in the original language, the Greek means to give it some thorough thought and some thorough concentration. Don't just start doing good works. Do the best works. And as it says here in verse 8, the best works flow from your belief in God. So carefully figure out which good works honor God the most. You know, there's this principle that's been made popular by several smarter people than I, so I don't take credit for this. But lots of people have, have written different things on this general principle. And it's this, good, better, best. So there are good things in your life that you should say no to. And there are even better things than those that you should say no to. Why? So that you can spend your time and your energy and your life on the best things. See, that's what Paul is getting at when he says, be careful to devote yourself to good works. Don't just start doing whatever. You only have 24 hours in the day like the next person. You need to be careful to devote yourself to the best things. Which good works are the best that will honor God the most? Be careful to do those. But there's another layer to this. There are certain good works that you personally honor God best with. So maybe for you it's helping others with appliances or home repairs or physical tasks. 
Or maybe for you, it's helping others with, by just being a good listening ear or encouraging them, sending encouraging texts, giving them encouraging calls, writing them letters. Maybe it's helping others know God more by leading a Bible study or being a youth leader or leading a connection group or something like that. Or maybe it's helping kids and parents alike, like Stacy was talking about earlier, by serving in kids' ministry. But God has made you with certain abilities, gifts, and talents, and those are the ones that you need to spend most of your time on. But the next part of this phrase, it says, be careful to devote themselves to good works. Devote means committed, faithful, sticking to it no matter what. So let's just say, for example, you figure out one of the best ways for you to honor God by doing good works right now in your life is to meet regularly with the, the guy that's living in our home for a while program right now, going through our program right now. You, you decide, you know what? I'm really good at helping people find employment. I have different connections, and I just kind of know what to do to, to help people find jobs. So I'm going to help that person, that guy, no matter what, I'm just going to stick to it. So when it says devote, it means you keep showing up and you're available for them even when you're busy, even when life gets crazy for you, even when guys start to struggle, even when guys quit and leave the program, you stick at it and keep helping the next guy. That's what it means to devote yourself to good works. Maybe you need help figuring out what the best works are for you to devote yourselves to. I would love to meet with you personally. I, I, this is one of my passions in life, to help people, to help unlock what the, the basic one or two things that God really has wired them for. I'd love to, to help you find what that is if you're struggling to figure that out. Verse 14, he reiterates this. He says, let our people learn to devote themselves to good works for pressing needs so that they will not be unfruitful. He adds something here, for pressing needs. Another layer to doing good works is, doing, is, is meeting good works for pressing needs. This is another huge factor for figuring out what good works you should spend your time on. What are the greatest pressing needs right now around me? Paul actually just mentioned some of those pressing needs for them in verses 12 and 13, if you look at it. We need to have our heads on a swivel for the needs around us. You see, I might, I might not be great with a chainsaw, which I'm not, okay? But I've got two arms and a good back. So when a derecho hits my town, the good works that I need to devote myself to regardless of what I'm best at and really called to, is to help people move some brush in my neighborhood. See, that's an example of, of pressing needs around us. We need to be ready and willing to meet those needs, even when, probably especially when, it's not normally what we would choose to do. So just think, at home, at work, at church, in your neighborhood, what are the urgent pressing needs right now that you can meet? may not be your cup of tea normally, but the need is right there and it's glaring. How could I step up? So we need to devote ourselves to good works. They need to be reminded, do good works, do good works. But what's the fuel for this? What's the gospel fuel, motivation for doing good works? Well, verse five, 
He says, he saved us, not by works of righteousness that we had done, but according to his mercy, through the washing of regeneration and renewal by the Holy Spirit. You know, tragically, some of the most fervent, faithful do-gooders in society are other religions and cults who teach that you must do good works in order to earn favor. But I'd contend that we, as Bible-believing, grace-motivated followers of Jesus, should be the most fervent and faithful do-gooders around. Why? Because it's not our do-gooding that gets us saved. That's what it says in verse 5. Our good works were never enough or never will be enough. And you might be thinking, that's backward thinking, Matt. If works don't save us, why would that motivate us? Well, did you see at the end of verse 5? What do we get? What is salvation? We get a washing of regeneration. Our sins are wiped away and we're regenerated. We're made a new person. Renewal by the Holy Spirit, it says. The Holy Spirit makes life brand new for us. Gives us a fresh start. And we don't just get those things once. We get those things indefinitely. We get a clear, new, fresh start all the time for eternity. This is what we get because of the work of Christ. Now, I work with volunteers almost exclusively as a part of my job. And there are two types of volunteers. And I'm grateful for all volunteers, by the way. But you know this if you've ever been a volunteer or worked with volunteers. You have, you have people who are just doing you a favor by helping out with this or that, right? Or you have people that do it because they genuinely love serving in that ministry or doing that task. Both are inevitable, and I'm grateful for all volunteers. But which kind of volunteer will last and do the most good? Those that genuinely love serving in that way. Here's the point. Doing good things to try to get God's favor and acceptance won't last because it always, you'll always fall short. It's never good enough. But if you do good things in response to his acceptance and his favor because you genuinely love him in return, you're going to have lasting, effective, good works and fruit. Tim Keller, in, in talking with a skeptic, in his book, Prodigal God, said this, and I've read this before, but I love this. He said, I asked, her, I asked her what was so scary about unmerited free grace. She replied something like this. If I was saved by my good works, then there would be, no, there, then there would be a limit to what God could ask of me or put me through. I would be like a taxpayer with rights. I would have done my duty and now I would deserve a certain quality of life. But if it really is true that I am a sinner saved by sheer grace at God's infinite cost, then there's nothing he cannot ask of me. Church, there's nothing God cannot ask of us because he gave it all for us. We should be leading the way in doing good works in society. So let's do it. Not by focusing on good works, but by focusing on his work and letting that propel us to do great works. Remember to do good works. 
Second helpful reminder, avoid bickering. Verse 2 says, slander no one. Avoid fighting. Let's start with avoid fighting. Many other translations say avoid quarreling. I think that that hits it more on the head. Because fights, we think of like all-out fist fights or yelling matches. And you might think, oh yeah, I I don't do that. I do a pretty good job avoiding those. But quarreling, quarreling means bickering. And bickering over what I call rib issues. So there's spine issues and there's rib issues. Your spine, you don't, you don't have that, you're going to have a hard time sitting up, walking. Rib issues, you actually can do without a rib. It's painful, but you can do without a rib. So spine issues are like this. Jesus is God. The Bible is absolute truth. Jesus rose from the dead. Absolutely essential, clear truths taught in Scripture. Rib issues are like this. You should vote for this particular candidate. End time views. Views on free will. See, all of these are debatable issues within Scripture. So avoid quarreling, bickering about little things that don't matter as much. Verse 9, he says essentially the same thing. Avoid foolish debates, genealogies, quarrels, and disputes about the law because they are unprofitable and worthless. Bickering is the word we use today to describe that. Avoid bickering about rib issues that are debatable. Now here's the thing. There's healthy, respectful debate that's actually very helpful. Don't avoid that. But when relationships within a church family start to erode, you've crossed the line into bickering. Avoid that. It's not worth it, is what he's saying. And verse 2, he also says, slander no one. Don't say false things about other people. Alex Tugnes last week said it like this. Just because someone says something bad about another person or another group of people doesn't mean it's true. I thought that was so profound. You know how much bickering we'd avoid if we just fact-checked ourselves? See, not slandering helps mitigate bickering because it helps us steer clear of drama. It helps us stick to the facts of the matter. But here's the thing. I don't know anyone who thinks of themselves and goes, you know what? I bicker a lot with other people. I should work on that. I just, I just don't know anyone who actually thinks of themselves as someone who bickers, even if they do. So let me ask you this. Do you find yourself stirring the pot regularly? That's not always bad. right? It can, it can actually be very good to stir the pot sometimes, right? It can be very beneficial. But if that's you, you're probably way more prone to bickering than you think you are. Or let me ask this. Do you look for opportunities to discuss controversial topics? Like, look for them. Again, not always bad, can be done in a healthy manner, but chances are you're more prone to bickering if that's you. Verse 10 says, Reject a divisive person after a first and second warning, for you know that such a person has gone astray and is sinning. He is self-condemned. 
So there's, there's some strong words here. Division in the church is a huge deal to God. So if someone bickers often with others in the church, division is going to be sure to follow. But Paul tells Titus, don't put up with that. He, he tells him, hey, do the three-strike system. Three strikes, you're out. And he's so severe because division is the opposite of what Jesus came to do. Think of it. Jesus came to reconcile, to restore relationships. Restore relationship between us and God. And then the outworking of that is to restore relationships with one another based off of that. So that's why he's so serious about this. Bickering tears apart a church family from the inside out. If we focus on our non-essential differences in opinion, instead of focusing on the essential truths of God's word, our church family will be destroyed. Now, we, we're given some gospel fuel to avoid bickering. Look at verse 3. It says, For we too were once foolish, disobedient, deceived, enslaved by various passions and pleasures, living in malice and envy, hateful, detesting one another. We too. Bickering is reverting back to who you were before Christ. Hateful. Detesting one another. That's not who you are anymore. Live in relationship with others in a new way. See, whenever you choose to walk around detesting somebody else, even in your own mind and heart, whenever you choose to bicker and drive wedges between yourself and other people, you're not being the new man or woman that God has created you to be. He made you a new creation so that you would Act like a new creation with others. But don't simply avoid bickering. Redeem it. Pursue conversations with other believers who differ in opinion from you. And then seek to understand and listen and be respectful. And then walk away, maybe even better friends, where you just agreed to disagree. That's incredible. I've had that happen so many times where it's just, that can be so Great. Imagine our world. Imagine the church. If we did that, people would go, wait, you can talk about things where you disagree and walk away without hating each other? What is that? That's what Jesus does. That's what the gospel does. Remember to avoid bickering. The third and final reminder he gives us in this passage is to be kind. Be kind. Verse 2, to slander no one, to avoid fighting, and to be kind, always showing gentleness to all people. Now I'll admit the CSB here is not the best translation because it gives the idea of always being timid. Because it says always showing gentleness to all people. But if you look at the original language, that isn't, that isn't what it's calling us to. To be weak and timid is not what Paul is calling us to. And it's certainly not how you would describe Jesus and his ministry. So the New Living Translation does better here. They say, instead, they should be gentle and show true humility to everyone. This is the idea of being humble and treating people with respect. Eugene Peterson put it like this, big-hearted and courteous. Big-hearted and 
courteous. You know, all of our elders right now fit this description really well. Kevin Lambert, Dave Niebel, Randy Shaver, Tim Ellis. None of them are weak and timid. They all have very strong convictions and they're not afraid to share them. Yet, all of them are respectful and courteous and kind while sharing their opinions. They're all big-hearted and genuinely care for other people even when they disagree with them. That's incredible. I look up to these guys. Be kind. But be kind has probably lost some of its meaning because it's used a lot today. So let's start with what it doesn't mean. Being kind doesn't mean being a quiet, pushover, yes man or yes woman who smiles all the time. It's not what be kind means. Here's what it means. It means to treat people with respect and dignity even when you disagree with them. It means to treat people with respect and dignity even when they're not your favorite person in the world. It means to treat people with respect and dignity even when they don't treat you with respect and dignity. That's what it means to be kind. True kindness shines brightest not when things are all good, but when tension is thick. When tension is thick, can you maintain respect and dignity for this other person created in God's image? Verse 15, he ends by saying, All those who are with me send you greetings. Greet those who love us in the faith. Grace be with you all. Another aspect of kindness is that it's full of grace. It's the ability to pray for and and hope for unearned favor, grace to be with each and every person. Paul was incredibly kind and it's shown by his desire for grace for everyone. He begins and ends almost all of his letters by saying, grace be with you, grace be with you, grace be with you. Why? He had a truly kind heart. And his gospel fuel and our gospel fuel for being kind is found in verse four. But when the kindness of God our Savior and his love for mankind appeared, the kindness of God propels us to be kind. See, when the tension was thick between us and God, verse three, God didn't abandon us or hurl insults at us like we deserved. Instead, he treated us with kindness. But not because we deserved that type of respect, but because he loves us. If you're struggling to treat others with dignity and respect right now in life, take a good, hard look at the kindness of Jesus. Let me read verses four through seven again. But when the kindness of God our Savior and his love for mankind appeared, he saved us not by works of righteousness that we had done, but according to his mercy, through the washing of regeneration and renewal by the Holy Spirit, he poured out his spirit on us abundantly through Jesus Christ our Savior, so that having been justified by his grace, we may become heirs with the hope of eternal life. So, I just want you to look at verses 4 through 7. If you have a copy of the scripture in front of you, I want to do something a little different. Just shout out all the kind things that God did for us in these verses. You don't have to look hard. There's a lot, a lot of them. 
What were the kind things God did for us? Just go for it. That's right. Hope of eternal life. Washed away our sins. Good. Yeah, gave us the Holy Spirit. Good. Mercy. Yep, we didn't deserve it. Yes, confidence that we'll inherit eternal life. True, living hope because He is alive. Yep. Become heirs, it says. We get eternal we get an eternal inheritance. Anything else? New birth, new life, good. We're justified, right? Just as if I've never sinned. We're made right and right standing before God. He regenerated us. He transformed us completely. This is good. So remember the good news of the gospel. Keep coming back to this. If you struggle with kindness, don't wake up tomorrow and go, I'm going to be kind today. No, 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 no. Look at verses 4 through 7 over and over and over again. And let the kindness of God our Savior, Jesus Christ, motivate you and fuel you to do good works, to avoid bickering, and to be kind. Let's pray. Jesus, we thank you for your example. We thank you for your motivation from the gospel. This is incredible news. You don't just say, hey, you better do good works. Hey, you better not bicker. Hey, you better be kind. No, you say, hey, you should do these things because because I have done these things. So thank you for the best, the best work that was ever done. You going to a cross that you didn't deserve. Dying a brutal death that we deserved in our place and rising from the dead, giving us new life if we repent of our sins and trust in you. So Jesus, I pray that we would live in that resurrection power this week. That we would would over and over again remind our minds and our hearts of the good news of Jesus Christ. Of the kindness of God our Savior. And that would fuel us to lead the way in doing good works. And to be the kindest people in the world. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.